0: Our second week of Advent, last week we began Advent looking at the subject of hope. We're going to continue the season of Advent. Today we're going to be looking at really the subject of the faithfulness of God. So we've been in a a series uh, that precipitated this whole series, um, just looking verse by verse at the entire um, Sermon on the Mount, which is in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, 6, and 7, And uh, so we have been part of kind of a larger, as was mentioned by Greg, um, entire year series called the Year of Biblical Literacy, which we've invited you guys to read the entire Bible with us, which a number of you guys have. So again, I've mentioned this to you guys on a number of occasions. I'm so proud of you guys that have done that. Again, I realize for some that might have been a new step for many of you, and uh, you you didn't do so great. But again, I, I like to think of it this way. The idea was not necessarily to accomplish a goal or to, you know, tick a box and to say, I I did this. If you're able to do that, it's rad. But if not, then uh, what you did do is you engaged in new practices. And uh, that kind of dovetails into what we're excited about moving into the next year um, and looking at is we kind of begin year 2019, uh, what we'll be looking at is a series of teachings looking at what we're just simply calling spiritual disciplines. I haven't really decided exactly what we're going to describe it, but all of these are, for example, you look at the life of Jesus and even his followers. um, Each of these guys had practices that they had done, guys and gals, obviously it's church was a bunch of people, right? Um, And they had practices, things that they did that uh, embodied the life of God in what they had. It wasn't just that they were going around professing things. They were doing things. So examples of things that Jesus and his followers did are things like uh, praying and solitude, spending time with God, Uh, scripture reading, which is something obviously like we did this past year, fasting and feasting, right? Both of which... Jesus knew how to party, right? Every time Jesus partied, he was around a table. But he also fasted. Uh, It would have been a practice that Jesus had done. Again, some of these things, I think, for many of us as Western Christians, um, we think of practices as being liturgical or ritualistic. So, therefore, we try to distance ourselves from practices. And I think what ends up happening is we have a shallow Christianity as a result of that. And we kind of unplug from some of these historical, traditional elements of what are actually rooted in Scripture. And we try to figure out our way in following the way of Jesus, uh, divorce or separate from a lot of certain practices. And we try to figure out, why is my Christian walk so shallow? Why does all this stuff not make sense? And sometimes I wondered, is, is it because we've removed ourselves from certain practices? So we'll be spending some time looking at that. But the dovetail of that into the teaching through the book of Daniel will be how to really be a faithful follower of God in a very hostile culture. Because that was the story of Daniel in in summary, that Daniel was faithful to his uh, covenantal identity, which meant he was a faithful Jew living in the highest levels of power, right, in Babylon, which if you know anything about the Bible, Babylon is not a good place, right? Babylon is like um, the epitome of the White House, of, uh, you know, Red China, I mean, all of these places that, for the most part, have been identified or depicted throughout Scripture as these oppressive, militaristic world superpowers that care about nobody else except themselves. And so the idea is, here you got Daniel living as a faithful Jew in the center of this world militaristic superpower. And we'll be looking at that. So I'm really excited about jumping into 2019, exploring what it looks like for us to be followers of Jesus, in the world in which we live in. So anyways, that being said, right now we're in the middle of Advent. And today what we've been doing um, the past two weeks, this is week two, is uh, the tradition of lighting an Advent wreath. Again, this is not a practice that's necessarily at all you're going to find in the Bible because it's not there. But the idea, the symbolism of it is to light a candle. It's a way to remind us of Jesus as being the light of the world. But we also combine that with the reading of a scripture. And so if you guys... Um, have been following along, or if you would like to get information about what's happening in our church, um, we highly recommend being a part of what we call the e-weekly. It's a way for you to get information in your email box about all the stuff that's happening in our church. In that, uh, we had a link to what's called the Village Church, right out of um, Texas. Matt Chandler, if you're familiar with him, um, they have this really cool Advent guide which you can download. It's kind of a hefty thing, so we would print some out for you, but. Um, be figured that you can, you can print them out yourself. Or you can just use the digital version. But the idea is to follow along every week uh, with a series of uh, scriptures. Um, if you have a family, if you've got roommates or people that you know, you want to do the Advent uh, wreath and the Advent uh, readings, you can just download that guide and it's really nice and easy to be able to do that as well. But that, we're following that uh, rhythm along here in the church on Sunday morning. So every week we're having a different representative of our church family uh, read a passage and then light the candle which again i've mentioned this last week we don't have fire we have uh, these like little fake candles so we press a button so it's magic <laughs> um so i'm gonna have michael come on up and he's gonna read the passage for us today and then we'll light the candle and then i will pray and then we'll begin to look at uh our teaching for today so let's give michael a round of applause <laughs> i did this for a service and i figured i'd I'll do it right now. I'm going to brag at Michael. Michael is a huge servant. This guy comes in early, stays oftentimes late serving, setting things up, taking care of, so that your guys' experience here, he's one of many volunteers, people that just devote time and energy to serving God's people. So thank you, Michael. He's an awesome guy. So So, uh, today's readings from Luke chapter 2, verses 3 to 7. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Boom. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. So last week, in summary, we looked at the subject of hope. We basically pointed out that hope um, has to be anchored in something that's able to sustain a hope. In other words, if you place hope in something that cannot make good on its promises, when that thing fails, when it falls, when it breaks you will fail, fall, and break alongside it. Because that's just the nature of placing your hope in something that cannot sustain your hopes. Um, So what we're going to look at today is something even bigger. Because hopes have to be founded in something. And what we want to look at really today is the subject of the faithfulness of God. Because Advent, this season, is about God's faithfulness, among other things. It's about Jesus, but it's really about Jesus being the fulfillment of a long storyline... Uh, connected to long promises of God. Again, over hundreds of years. And that might be a little bit hard for us to follow along and to consider. But again, this idea that God is not on necessarily any time frame to kind of fulfill things per se according to our liking. Um, God is not, he doesn't live inside of a, uh, a, a lamp and, and you are not allowed And the idea is that God does not work according to our time schedule. He's not obligated to us, but what we have is this God that, that makes promises, and that he says, look, just trust my character to fulfill these promises, and that's what, we, that's what we're given. We're given a relationship, and I want to look at specifically today the subject of faithfulness. So in a sense, part of this series of Advent is to look at a handful of themes and large concepts and ideas that kind of make their way interwoven throughout the entire biblical narrative, and that's what we'll be looking at here today. If you guys don't have any Bible, why don't you raise your hand? We have some ushers. We'd love to get you guys some Bibles, and we're going to be reading a handful of passages as we jump into this. So, what I want to do today, in looking at the nature of the faithfulness of God, we'll look at a handful of things. So, just again, if you're following along from last week, uh, the, what we said about the subject of hope is that biblical hope. Um, is basically rooted in three things. Number one, God's promises, which kind of we'll look at the faithfulness of God's promises today. Number two, God's freedom and creativity to fulfill those promises, meaning that God can fulfill those promises however he chooses in his own creative form and fashion. Thirdly, we saw that God's uh, way of fulfilling these things is is surprising. Uh, That God will oftentimes fulfill his promises in unexpected or unpredictable ways. Those are the... Three ideas which we say are attributed to the nature of biblical hope. Uh, We read the passage out of Luke. What I want to do right now is I want to read a passage to you guys out of the book of uh, Micah. Uh, Again, another famous Christmas time passage. And then I want to finish with the passage out of the book of Matthew. Then we'll just jump in and look at some ideas around these passages that I think kind of arise in the text. We'll make some observations and we'll just kind of wrap it up nice and sweet. So Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says this. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are little uh, to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one who is to be the ruler over all of Israel, whose coming forth is from old and from ancient days. Again, without getting into kind of a lengthy background as to like, what the story of Micah is about in terms of its backstory or context, um, God just gives us prophecy, this word, to this and through this prophet Micah. And what we know from the New Testament is that this passage is fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Or at least that's how the New Testament writers assumed it. Because what I'm going to read right now in what we actually just read in the story of Luke is basically that, that this promise was fulfilled by Jesus. But what I want to read is I want to read the story of Matthew. Uh, Again, another famous passage if you are at all familiar with the story of Jesus uh, this is definitely one of those passages you've heard read at some point. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. I'll just read it. You can follow along. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? I'm going to pause real quick and just say, say something. What Matthew's describing here is, is a few years after the birth of Jesus. So I'll just kind of say this. that... Most of us, we kind of grew up having these pictures of the manger, like on your, you know, mantle or fireplace or underneath the Christmas tree. At least in my household, we did. And you have the wise men right there in like the little manger scene. What, what I would suggest to you—that's entirely theologically incorrect, right? So that might come as a shock to some of you. There were no wise men at all at the birth of Jesus, right? At all, none. Um, they were shepherds and Jesus, and Mary, and maybe a bunch of animals and probably sheep. But the point of the matter is, what we're told in this story right here is that the wise men, they came a couple years later, uh, so if you want to be biblically accurate, what you can do is you can take your wise men that are in your manger scene, throw them out over past your backyard in your neighbor's yard, and they are you know 2,000 miles away from your house. That's more representative of where the wise men would have been at the time of Jesus' birth. They would have been still in their native territories and lands. But the point of the matter is, is that what we're told here is that these wise men, they come a couple years after Jesus was born. They come to Herod, trying to figure out where is... The king of the Jews, the one that has fulfilled the great prophecies, the promises. And so Herod gets nervous because he, uh, as a despot, is deeply concerned about his own power and his own authority. And, he, and he, when he hears that there's another rival king, he freaks out because that's what kings do. is They're worried about maintaining their posture and their position and their power and whatnot. And so he's concerned about that. So he's trying to figure out a way to uh, conspire to to. You know, put whatever baby threat that there is to death. And he goes on and say, says, For we have seen the star the wise men. We've seen the star rise. Uh, we've come to worship this king. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And then assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where's the Christ who was born? And then he told them, in Bethlehem, in Judea, so that it was written by the prophet. Again, this is the prophecy that we just read out of Micah. So they're basically saying, the writer Matthew is narrating for us, he's telling us that this was a fulfillment of that prophecy written several hundred years prior by the prophet Micah. O you, uh, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by no means, least among all the rulers of Judah, from you shall come a ruler who is a shepherd of my people Israel. So what we see so far is this This. Composition is picture that Jesus is born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of this promise that God had made through this prophecy of Micah. Now, we have some problems here we got to think about because that's what I want to look at because the nature of God's faithfulness is that he will do something based upon his own uh, character. Like the idea here, let me, let me say this. You and I, we can make promises, Many of us, we might have good hopes and big aspirations and great desires to make promises for other people. What we might be limited in is our power to fulfill those promises. Does that make sense? So on the other hand, you could be someone that has a lot of power, meaning you've got a lot of money, you've got a lot of clout, you've got a lot of you know, people that you know in high places, and you can get stuff done, but you have no desire, right? What we see with God is he not only has this intention to bless, but he also has the power to do so. Now, where the tension comes is what about moments where it seems like God is not moving? What does it look like? Well, how do we deal? How do we wrestle through those moments where it seems as if God is slow in his activity? Hello, we just looked at this last week. We saw that there was a distinction between the promise that was made and the fulfillment of Jesus of 700 years, all right? Again, that's three times as old as America is, that's... A quarter old from when the time of the Reformation happened. 700 years from the time that God made the promise to the time when he fulfilled it. So God's not in a rush, apparently, right? You get the idea. So what I want to look at is the subject of God's faithfulness and how he works things out. So again, this is the foundation for our hope. So if you and I desire to have hope, which we all do, we want, because the opposite of hope is despair, We, as human beings, cannot remain in a status of despair for any length of time without having to do something about it. Whether it would be we narcoticize ourselves by drinking too much or taking drugs or doing things that somehow um, pause or bring some numbing of our own conscience so we don't have to deal with it. Or we live in denial of it or we become angry. We do things to somehow deal with our despair. Uh, The opposite of despair is hope, meaning we are people that need to have hope. But again, like I said, if you place your hope in something that is not able to make good on its promises, you're literally setting yourself up for failure. And the nature of the Bible is it makes this radically massive claim to put your hope in God. Because apparently, according to the biblical narratives, that God is able to make good on his promises. And that's what we're going to look at here today. So God's faithfulness, what I wanted to really focus on, I'll give you the three things that we'll look at and we'll kind of go back, look at them through the text and we'll just wrap it up. That God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises ultimately involve at least three things. Number one, again, just in the passage we'll look at. There's a lot of other things you can look at with regard to this, but we'll be looking at one element of God's faithfulness to fulfill his promise and the three things are number one his desire and ability to meet our needs that God actually has not only desire but also ability like we had alluded to earlier to actually fulfill and meet our needs we'll look at that in the text secondly uh, oftentimes God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises in our lives can sometimes feel like feel like radical disruption and, and in some ways radical disorientation of our lives and we'll talk about that again out of the text Thirdly, we see that it also involves ultimately the kingship of Jesus. That whatever God is up to, whatever direction he's going, the main big E on the I chart that we can never miss is that God is aiming at establishing the kingship, the lordship of Jesus over over all things. So, with that, let's jump back and we'll look at these in the passage and we'll wrap this up. Number one, we see that his desire and ability is to meet our needs. So this actually comes through through a word that just gets translated in our Bible as Bethlehem. Now, again, many of us, we read that because we don't necessarily read Hebrew. We're unfamiliar with the words mean. Now, again, like our language, many words and names of towns and places actually have another meaning to it. And the word Bethlehem literally means house of bread which is radically significant. So wherever God is going to enter into our brokenness, the way that he's going to do that, the area that he's going to do that, the space that he's going to do that, is through a particular city, region, right? City, tribe, you know, or area, or, you know, podunk town, however you want to think of it. It's a little small village, right? But the name of that village happens to be Bethlehem. The idea of Bethlehem, house of bread, the house of bread, God actually cares about the needs of people. Back in that day, bread was a staple. It was, it was like literally what people lived by. So when Jesus, for example, said, man shall not live by bread alone, in a reference to an Old Testament passage, that was, it was lived by uh, every word of God. The, the big idea behind that is that bread is a staple. Like, like, in some ways, it's an oxymoron. Of course we need bread. It's what we live off of. But Jesus, what he's suggesting, is that life is actually far more than just simply physically, physical sustainability. There's something about flourishing that's far more than you just simply taking care of your body and your healthy, functional, physical needs. In order for us to flourish, in order for us to actually thrive in life, it obviously involves not only our physicality, but also our mental state. Because you could be broken in a physical body, but radically be thriving. I think of a gal named Johnny Erickson Tata, who is who's a quadriplegic. Totally thriving. Again, for many of us, we think, how is that possible? She can't walk. She can't do anything. And yet, again, look her up, uh, just Google her, find her stuff. She's absolutely amazing. But here's a gal that lost her capacity of actually being able to function, but not her capacity to flourish because she has tapped into something, a life. And God entering into this world is going to enter into this little village called Bethlehem. And it's also significant in the life of Jesus that Jesus makes reference to himself that I'm the bread of life. He uses this analogy to describe I am the very thing you feast off of will give you the ability to flourish. That Jesus actually cares about the most minimal things in our lives. Now, for us to think about that is, opens a door, I think, for us to enter into an understanding, a relationship, with this God actually cares about us. Because many of us, we might have this idea where we tend to think God doesn't really care too much about my life. Or God might care about other people, but I'm not really confident he cares about me. Or maybe God cares about the big stuff in my life, like where I go when I die. But doesn't care about my flourishing. He doesn't care about my ability to be able to enjoy and to have life and to know him in the midst of this or to care for me in terms of even my own loneliness or the challenges or the hardships or sicknesses or disease that I deal with in my life or even the moments where I feel uh, humiliated or broken or abandoned um, or betrayed. And all of these things we see in the life of Jesus. Him going into relational connectedness with other people In interacting with them, whether it be giving them back their humanity by removing their sickness or their illness or their skin disease or whatever it is that somehow alienated from the community of people, that we see this God or God entering in and sometimes even creating food for them. The idea behind this is that we have a God that actually cares about everything in our lives. Now, I don't know how that resonates with you. Because again, for many of us, we have these false ideas, false notions about who God is. So we come to God allowing other concepts to shape our understanding of who God is. And we have these false, misinformed, misguided concepts of God. If you want to think of it this way, we think of God as a cartoon caricature. And he's not the real God. And the invitation for us is to rethink our understanding of who God is through the lens of Jesus. God actually entering into this world, into this little village called Bethlehem, I think if anything, shows us that God cares about the most minimal base forms that give us life. And one final thing. I think it's also significant that just before Jesus dies, he sits with his disciples around a table. He invites them in. And he takes the bread. And he breaks it. This is my body. Again, he's tapping into this old, ancient uh, Jewish narrative of the Passover. He says, this is my body. And then each of you partake of it. The idea is to enter into this relational Connectivity with with me, that God actually cares about us, and the invitation for us is to trust this God. The second thing that we see with regard to God's faithfulness to fulfill His promise is not only just His desire and His ability to meet our needs, as seen, I think, through just the very simple word Bethlehem, that God is entering into the house of bread. The second thing is is we see temporary disruption oftentimes that could end up happening, and again, in order for God to fulfill His promise. Uh, this is not kind of one of those blatant depictions here in the storyline, but I want you to listen to it, because it kind of struck me as I was reading through the story. I'm like, this is, this is crazy when you think about what's happening here. Again, if you look at it in the book of, uh, I think it's the Gospel of Luke. Let me, let me read this to you. No, sorry, uh, the little passage that we had just read in Matthew. So it tells us that uh, Joseph and Mary, they were living in the region of Judea, which, which by the way, is not Bethlehem. So they were living in this particular region that was not Bethlehem. Um, And what ends up happening is, actually, I'm going to go to the book of Luke. That's where I want to read. Luke chapter 2. I'll just read this to you, listen to it, I'll make some comments, and then uh, we'll bring it home. Uh, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So again, Luke's telling us a little bit of the backstory. Uh, He says that this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Again, some of his this detail We're just like, why all the detail? I think if anything you want to take away from all this is just realizing that the story of Jesus is not just a myth. It's, it's actually rooted in history. It's rooted in an actual storyline of real human beings that actually took place. And they're just simply recording data for us and information for us to take note of. It says, and all of them, they went out to be registered, each to their own town. It says, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth. So at this particular point, wherever they were on the map, they were physically living in the town of Nazareth around the region of Galilee. Again, this is the problem in the text. Because, wait a minute, isn't the baby, the child, the king, supposed to be born in Bethlehem? It would be like this, all right? If... Uh, something magical and amazing is supposed to happen in Santa Barbara and the person is living in San Luis Obispo, you have to somehow move them from San Luis Obispo to Santa Barbara. Like, something physical actually has to happen. So here's the situation. Joseph and Mary are living in another place that's not Bethlehem. They got to get to Bethlehem in order to fulfill this promise. So how's God going to do that? How is this going to take place? Well, ironically, God actually mobilized and utilized the... Power-broking of Caesar and the governors to somehow create this registration to mobilize, to move Joseph and Mary from their town into this other region. Now, again, this is one of those little fine details that doesn't necessarily get brought out in the text, though it's there. But just think about this. Um, how old was Mary in terms of her pregnancy uh, during this time? Best guess is maybe seven, maybe eight months pregnant. Now, um, a lot of you are, are, are guys, so this, this, you don't have to answer this. But uh, if you're a woman or you know somebody, anybody that was pregnant, during the seventh and eighth month of the pregnancy, the last thing you want to do is get on a donkey. All right, there you go. last thing you want to do is get on a donkey. All right. The most important thing to do is stay comfortable, be able to have a nice walk around the neighborhood. The last thing you want to do is travel. In fact, they actually have travel bans, I think, where if you are nine months pregnant, they won't actually let you even get on a plane because they don't want something crazy going on. But the point of the matter is, this is exactly what's happening to Mary. Maybe seven, eight, maybe even nine months pregnant. Imagine the level of disorientation and disruption that brings to your life. Why? Well, because God's fulfilling a promise. Imagine, again, you are here in Mary's place, And the degree of disruption that this has brought to you, maybe even the question of, God, why are you allowing this to happen? Why are you allowing this thing to take place? This is radically disrupting my life. This is totally uncomfortable. But this is all part of God. So here's what I would suggest. There are occasions in the Bible, and even occasions throughout our lives, for God to fulfill, for God to do what God wants to do, he will oftentimes allow disruptions in our lives to happen. One scholar, theologian kind of uses his framework to not only construct around the entire Psalms, but really also the entire storyline of the Bible. And he describes it as orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. This is what God's up to in this world. He's taking things that were once in a status of orientation. They're oriented. There feels this degree of commonality and commonplace and peace or shalom. And then things get turned upside down and appended and there's this degree of disorienting reality that becomes the new norm but that's not where God leaves it because he's working things as scripture tells us to those that love God are called according to his purposes he's working all things together for good that means that in the midst of the disruptions in me it means in the midst of the disorienting circumstances of our lives that God will make good on this That's exactly what happened with Mary. Again, this is a momentary side marginal note in their life that I would imagine in the moment was not marginal. Does that make sense? So think about what are the circumstances perhaps even in your life right now that feels so big. It feels like the main storyline. But in four years from now, four months from now, four days from now, four weeks from now, it's just going to be a side note. This is what we see, that oftentimes in order for God to fulfill his promises, these types of circumstances end up happening or taking place within our lives. Uh, Finally, I want to think about the bigger picture is the idea of the kingship of Jesus. Now, he goes on to say that he, in that prophecy, that he was of the house of the lineage of David. This big idea is that what God is up to in the entire storyline of the Bible is to come into this world. That when we see that Jesus is the Savior, what we have is a God that is actually stepping into his creation that has been marred and vandalized and broken as a result of the consequences of human rebellion. We would call that sin. The idea of turning our backs on God brings consequences in our lives. In fact, if you want to think of it this way, from the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, all the way through Genesis 3, the first three pages of the Bible, you have this This imagery, this picture that God creates all things. You might even want to describe it as oriented. Everything is oriented around God. It's good. It's garden. It's Eden. It's beautiful. Adam and Eve, they ultimately turn their backs on God. And they allow, they entertain an alternative narrative to hijack their life. And as a result of that, they get banished from the garden. Which the idea, the concept of banishment, of being removed from something, where their hearts long for wholeness, their hearts long for peace, long for shalom, like I said earlier, we are wired to be hope-filled people. We cannot stay in a status of despair and brokenness and exile or alienation for long without feeling the effects of that. That's why one of the reasons I I said this even last week, for some of us, Christmas is an amazingly uh, happy, joyous season for others of us very painful because it's the reminder of what we don't have. It's a reminder of the pain. It's a reminder of broken relationships. It's a reminder of uh, emotions that get brought back up again or recycled year after year. And it's a reminder of this level of alienation. Throughout the Bible, you have this image of exile. So exile is kind of almost the same parallel idea as Banishment, Israel was, or Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. Israel, at some point, they enter into exile. Exile is the result of, of sin. Um, and we live in that reality. Like many of us, uh, it's either sin that we commit that causes our own exile, or sometimes it's not even sin that we've committed, it's sin that's been committed against us. We feel the effects of exile. Uh, in other words, we are at a distance from Home. And this is the hope that Jesus gives. But exile ultimately brings pain and destruction and ruin. And those that are in exile need a savior. And this is what we see repeatedly throughout the storyline of the Bible. Is that the claim of scripture is that even in the midst of our exile, or our banishment, or our alienation, or our brokenness, or our sinfulness, or our pain, or our loss, or our grief, is that we have a God that actually steps into that. To be a savior. That's what Christmas is about. It's God fulfilling his promises. God making good on what he said he would do it. Again, some creative ways to make this happen. Even in the life of Mary. To to fulfill that involved incredible disruption to her normal life. But at the means of bringing about the hope. So the invitation for us to really think about and consider. Is... To what degree that God is reorienting our lives to see Jesus as king? Because this is the big idea. He comes into this world not just to be a good teacher, not just to be somebody that we can, you know, nod our heads in agreement at and say, "That's an amazing teaching, love your neighbor. Yes, wonderful. But at the end of the day, not follow him. Jesus does not give us that option. The unambiguous claim of the New Testament all throughout is that Jesus is king. And what that means, really on a very practical level, is that what it means to actually have an encounter, a relationship with this God, is to see him as king. It's to invite him to be Lord over our lives. But at the same time, there's another situation that's happening where it forces us to have to look at what are other areas in our life that are speaking into us, that are giving us advice, or wisdom that are not voices from God. In other words, all of us, we have to deal with the subject of kingship or lordship. All of us have voices that are speaking to us, that are making assumptions about our future, about our lives, and about our circumstances even right now. But again, if we place hope in those voices that are not able to make good on their promises, when those promises fail and when they break, then we break along with them. But the invitation repeatedly of the New Testament is to trust Jesus as our King, as our Lord, as our Savior, place confidence in Him, which means to become loyal to Him, which simultaneously means to be disloyal to other voices, other claims, other kings, lowercase k, and to become loyal to Him as King. That's what it means to be a disciple. It means to say, I will apprentice under the life of this king. I will make whatever he claims, whatever he says, no matter how difficult, no matter how disoriented it may be, no matter how challenging it might be to my sensibilities, no matter how offensive it might be to the main narrative of culture and society at large today, I will make that claim my own. And I will trust his life as my own. And that might spell pain and challenge, and difficulty. Again, I'll restate this very clearly, that God's promise for us is not to give us an amazing life, not to remove all the suffering, but what he does promise is that even through suffering, to always be with us, and to always redeem whatever types of challenges and hardships that we end up going through, because this is the story that God invites us into. So, I don't know where you're at, and I don't know how this resonates with you, but my hope would be this morning, would be that you would see... If anything, we have a God that can be trusted. He's a faithful God, which means you and I would be wise to place our confidence in him. If you think of it this way, trust is a hard thing because trust involves me coming out of my place of comfort, no matter what it is. For some of us, we've gone through life and we've been lied to a lot, We've been abandoned a lot. We've given ourselves to others before. We've been in a relationship and we've been betrayed. And so therefore we create these little zones where we don't want to come out. We're very reluctant, very reticent because we do not want to be hurt again. And the life of faith, what Jesus invites us to is to say, come on out, you can trust me. You can trust me. I will make good of my word. And that's the invitation. That's what we see with Christmas is God stepping into our world, not ashamed of us, not afraid of us, but invites us to trust Him. So we're going to wrap this up and finish. I want to invite all of us. How about we all stand right now? We're going to respond as we sing, as we partake of the bread and of the cup, as we're reminded of what God has done for us. We'll wrap this up by worshiping, by confessing our sins, and confessing the greatness of Jesus. So again, I'm not sure exactly how this translates in your life, or the circumstances that you're going through that God may be addressing. But my hope this morning would be that you would consider, above and beyond anything else, that we have a God that's faithful. He's good. He's powerful. He doesn't always work according to our timeline. And He might even sometimes allow radical disruptions in our lives. But those disruptions do not mean that He's against you. It actually may mean that He's just simply rearranging the furniture of your life in order to set you up for the hope even more profound hope that's ahead. So let me pray for us. Let's close our eyes and just focus upon the goodness of God here today. So God, thank you for your love. And even right now, God, as we worship you, as we sing to you, God, help our hearts to trust you